Hey, Crossings Podcast community. This week's teaching is called Foundational Hospitality and is part eight in our series on the book of Luke. It was taught by Caleb Gilmore on November 5th, 2023. Thank you for listening. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. So uh, if you've been around for the last few years, uh, there's this thing that I feel like I end up doing. It's not really intentional, uh, but I end up giving some kind of like movie or TV show review and then making some implicit suggestion that you should watch that show. Um, And uh, for some reason, they all end up being Apple TV shows too. I don't know why, but uh, the show that I want to begin this morning with talking about uh, was actually a show that I mentioned two years ago when we studied the book of Jeremiah. It's the show Foundation on Apple TV. Anybody watching Foundation? Good. One person. Um, Back then, the connection uh, to the book of Jeremiah was this line that came from the first season of the show, that it takes more power to build than to burn. And, And Jeremiah was a book about how bad theology needed to burn But more importantly, it was about building what came after that. And that's really what the first season of Foundation, the show, is all about. But we are in the Gospel of Luke this morning, this New Testament story of the life of Jesus. And I kept thinking about this show again because I think it encapsulates the story of Jesus, not just in the Gospel of Luke, but actually the entire story of Scripture, uh, the epic scale of the biblical story. Foundation is a thousand-year story, and it flashes back and forwards with characters that interact with each other across space and time, and if that just sounds like too much work for a show, I totally understand if you don't want to watch that, Um, but it's really about the fall of this galactic empire and the complex grassroots movement of this new community called the Foundation that's trying to build something to take that empire's place, Um, and I think that's kind of a perfect description of what's happening in these stories about Jesus. Uh, The the gospel authors are trying to tell a story about an upstart kingdom of God that is subversively challenging the large oppressive empires across history. And there are all kinds of allusions in this gospel story uh, to earlier parts of the story back in the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament that occurred centuries before Jesus. So if you don't get anything else out of today, you have a new show to stream. Uh, Season two just finished, so you can go at it. Um, But today we're going to be looking at a collection of stories about Jesus uh, that make all these callbacks to the stories of Israel in the Hebrew scriptures. And there's four of these stories, and we're not going to have enough time to tell all four of the stories. I know it's daylight savings time, and there's like some joke I'm supposed to make about having an extra hour to preach, but I'm not going to do that to you guys. Um, I'd like for us, though, to consider how the stories that we do look at this morning uh, are meditations on the hospitality of the kingdom of God over and against the oppressive, controlling features of the empire of Rome, this, this empire that was in control when Jesus was living. So before we get to the story of Jesus, uh, we have to flash back to a story from the Hebrew Bible, a story about this prophet named Jonah. The story is set sometime around 750 BC when Israel was threatened by the domination of a growing Assyrian superpower. And this is how that story begins. Now the word of the Lord 
came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So Jonah is this Israelite prophet who is called to go to an Assyrian city, the city of Nineveh. This is a city that's outside of Israel. It's not an Israelite people. And he's sent to get them to change their ways. They're they're living unjustly. They're doing things that are oppressive. And Jonah's message is to go and get them to repent or to change. But Jonah doesn't do it. And as the ship sets out for Tarshish, which is in the complete opposite direction of where he's supposed to be going, a storm hits. Verses 4 through 5 say, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and such a mighty storm came upon the sea that the ship threatened to break up. Then the sailors were afraid, and each cried to his God. They threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them, Jonah, meanwhile, had gone down into the hold of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. The captain came and said to him, What are you doing? Sound asleep. Get up. Call on your God. Perhaps the God will spare us a thought so that we do not perish. So Jonah, in the midst of this torrential storm, is asleep below deck, seemingly unconcerned with whether the ship might sink, As we find out later, Jonah would prefer death than actually going to this non-Israelite place to try to help these people. But the sailors, who are also not Israelites, want him to wake up to see if his God will be the one that can calm the storm to save them. So Jonah wakes up, he knows what's going on, he tells the sailors to throw him overboard, and when they do, the storm goes away. Jonah is swallowed by a fish, spends three days in the belly of the beast, and then is vomited up on the shore, where he finally sets off for his original destination. Jonah gets to the city of Nineveh, he preaches to the Assyrians, he tells them to change, and miraculously, the people listen. They actually do what he says. They repent, and they are spared. And what most people miss about the story of Jonah is that it's really a story not about the fish, but about God's hospitality and God's concern for all people, for true justice, not just for one nation, but for all nations, even non-Israelite Assyrians living in Nineveh. And Jonah does not like this. The end of the book in chapter 4 says, but this was very displeasing to Jonah. And he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said while I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from punishment. And now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah is the only successful Hebrew prophet in that his audience actually does what he says. And yet he hates this success because he discovers that his God is more hospitable than he is. In fact, it seems that Jonah had these suspicions from the beginning but didn't want to find out if they were true. 
Jonah is a book that, that challenges its readers to move away from their nationalistic conceptions of God. And so, with that in mind, we can now flash forward to the story of Jesus in Luke chapter 8, verse 22. Luke writes, One day, he, Jesus, got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let's go out across to the other side of the lake. And so they put out, and while they were sailing, he fell asleep. A windstorm swept down on the lake, and the boat was filling with water, and they were in danger. They went to him and woke him up, shouting, Master, Master, we are perishing. And waking up, he rebuked the wind and the raging waves. They ceased, and there was a calm. So it's pretty obvious, since I kind of set up the story, that there are some parallels here to the story of Jonah. Jesus, like Jonah, is taking a journey by boat. The other side of the lake where they're heading is predominantly a Gentile or non-Jewish territory, the same way that Jonah was called to Assyria, which was a non-Israelite territory. Jesus falls asleep in the storm. Jesus' fellow sailors, his disciples, panic, try to wake him. And then, of course, Jesus fixes the situation and calms the storm. But there's some pretty obvious contrasts to the story as well. Jesus willingly sets out to this region of the Gentiles where Jonah tries to do the opposite. Jesus sleeping doesn't seem to come from a lack of concern or some kind of suicidal despair, but from a deep sense of trust that the waters aren't to be feared. And instead of tossing himself overboard, Jesus does what God does in the Jonah story by actually calming the storm himself. So in some sense, Jesus is really the anti-Jonah. Uh, where Jonah shows rebellion, Jesus shows willingness. Where Jonah res resents God's hospitality towards others, well, we'll have to see what Jesus does. Um, the, the, the text continues in verse 25. It says, Then he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were terrified and amazed and said to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? The question, who is this? We like to think that the disciples, because they've been hanging out with Jesus for some time now, know exactly who Jesus is. But it's clear that they're still learning things. They're still being surprised by Jesus. And the next part of the story is even more surprising. It says, Then they arrived at the region of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. As he stepped onto the shore, a man from the city who had demons met him. For a long time, he had not worn any clothes, and he did not live in a house, but in the tombs. So as soon as they, they drop anchor in this Gentile area of, of the Gerasenes, they're met by this demon-possessed man. And we're told that, first of all, he's naked, and that he lives among the tombs, which would have been considered unclean by Jewish ritual concerns. And this isn't the first account, if you've been with us throughout this series of Luke, that we've encountered someone who has a problem with demons or has been healed by, uh, uh, from being possessed by demons. Um, and it's probably something we should stop and talk about. <laughs> uh, we don't hear much more about uh, demon possession. At least I don't. If you do, we can talk after. Um, but maybe some of us are at the point where when we read these stories, we just kind of like to discount them. Um, 
as probably people with undiagnosed mental conditions, mental disorders that the ancients didn't really know about. They weren't psychologists. Um, and so they were living in this world that was more enchanted. And so they called it demon possession, where we might call it something else. Maybe others of us would like to say that this kind of stuff still happens. And we shouldn't try to explain it away just because it makes us uncomfortable or seems strange to us. It just so happens, totally by happenstance, that I saw the movie The Exorcist Believer this week. <laughs> uh, it, had by, it had been planned for a while with a group of guys. I'm not going to name those people because I don't want to embarrass them. Um, but, but it was planned well before I knew I was teaching on this text. And I remember seeing the original Exorcist movie, not in theaters, I'm not, I'm not that old, okay. Uh, but uh, I, I saw it as a teenager, rented it from Blockbuster, and I was just absolutely terrified. Absolutely terrified. And, and I fully expected the reboot to be nothing like it, to be completely awful. And I was not disappointed. <laughs> when the credits rolled, I audibly laughed out loud. Um, first of all, and here comes my review, okay? Uh, <laughs> there was really no effort to explain how the two girls in this movie got possessed or what led to the successful exorcism. And instead of a single Catholic priest confronting the demon, knowing what he's doing, explaining all of the things that are happening, it was just a slew of a bunch of different people from a bunch of different religious backgrounds, Pentecostal, Baptist, Catholic, herbalists, and skeptics, and the exorcism itself wasn't even about rites or rituals. It was explicitly by the characters about community and love defeating evil. But there was no attempt to explain how it worked. And in the end, it felt like a movie that wanted to emphasize the importance of human community, despite its differences, over and against the powers of evil, which is actually a really beautiful message, right? Like, I'm in on that. But we didn't need a demon movie to make that point. <laughs> In fact, it felt like the writers of the script didn't really have any concern about demons or the forces of evil. It was just supposed to be a scary, twisted movie with a very modern message. And my final takeaway was that some people made a movie about demon possession for a bunch of people who probably don't believe in demon possession. And I am not an expert on demons and angels, and I think you should be scared if I said I was. <laughs> what I'm not going to do in this story about this person possessed by demons is what the exorcist believer did and try to reframe this weird story that we're about to read as a very modern moral message that confirms the things we all already believe. What I can say is that what the ancients did when they viewed the world was pretty different from the way most of us view the world. In the Hebrew Bible, which is the Old Testament, and the New Testament, there are all kinds of hints that the people in these stories believe that the world was full of spirits and gods, and some of them were benevolent and some of them were malevolent. So in the Hebrew Bible, Psalm 82, there's this poem that's attempting to explain why there's injustice in the world. And it opens up this way. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? 
So this is the beginning of this psalm about injustice, and according to this worldview, there's a divine council room full of divine figures, and the God of Israel is judging some of them for not being good, for not instituting justice. And the psalm connects then injustice in the world to a lack of leadership in the heavens. The political realm and the heavenly realm are connected in this view. Deuteronomy 32, uh, another por portion of the Old Testament, explains the, or the origin of political territories this way. When the Most High, that's God, apportioned the nations, when he divided humankind, he fixed the boundaries of the people according to the number of the gods. So basically, ancient Israel, like most ancient peoples, believed that every nation had its chief deity that was in charge of its people, and people worshiped their God because that's the God that rules their land. It's political and it's religious. But this isn't just some kind of foreign Old Testament thing. Uh, Paul, while dismissing the, the reality of idol worship, says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, indeed, even though there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as in fact there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and the one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom, we, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Ancient Jews, of which Paul was one, like the ancient Romans and Greeks, saw the world as possibly populated by a host of heavenly and not-so-heavenly figures. And this is the world that we're entering into with this story. So we have to allow it to remain strange without trying to explain it away. Luke continues the story. When he, the demon-possessed man, saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him, shouting, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me, for Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, and then in parentheses, for many times it had seized him, and he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the wilds. So Jesus asked him, what's your name? He said, legion, for many demons had entered him. They begged him not to go they begged him not to order them to go back into the abyss. So the demons are in this man, and they immediately recognize Jesus, who they say is the son of the Most High God. The boss's kid has just shown up to work, and now they know that they're in for it. But the name of this demon, or demons, is said to be legion. A legion was also a unit of the Roman military. And here, it seems, at least, that the author is suggesting, again, some kind of connection between the political and the spiritual. There's a connection between the political oppression of Rome and the demonic manifestations that are tormenting this specific individual. How we connect these dots, I think, is probably totally up to us. Is this just an evil metaphor for Roman political oppression? Or are malevolent spirits somehow behind these governments? Whatever the case may be, these spirits do not want to return to the abyss. Luke goes on, verse 32. 
Now there on the hillside, a large herd of swine was feeding, and the demons begged Jesus to let them enter these. So he gave them permission, and the demons came out of the man and entered into the swine, and the herd stampeded down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. It's a wild scene. The demons enter this herd of pigs with permission from Jesus and drown themselves immediately. And remember, we're in Gentile territory, away from Jewish land. Pigs are considered unclean. They're not kosher in Judaism, but they are ostensibly here in this community. And so Jesus sends these legion spirits into these unclean swine where they are then destroyed. Again, we have to ask, is there some kind of sick joke here? Is Jesus making a statement? Is this a metaphor for the kingdom of God that will conquer unclean Rome? I don't know. This is, this is all complicated, though, by the fact that Jesus has just been complicit in ruining the local economy. And so the people ask Jesus to please leave. But the man who has been healed wants to actually follow Jesus. We, we hear about his story in verse 38. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. So he went away, proclaiming throughout the city how much Jesus had done for him. So in these other stories that we've read and in other stories that we will read, Jesus, whenever he heals somebody, usually asks them to be quiet, not to tell anybody, maybe go reveal themselves to the priests, but not to make a big deal about it. The difference here seems to be the fact that they aren't in the land of Israel so perhaps there aren't any messianic expectations or political threats to what Jesus is doing. Jesus can have this Gentile man go and tell all of his friends because there's no threat. But notice that Jesus tells the man to spread the word about what God has done for him, and it says that the man talks about what Jesus did. This, this really is the anti-Jonah story, because where Jonah did not want to save Nineveh, Jesus is very concerned about this one Gentile man who's been oppressed and abused by these evil spirits. And he tells him to spread the word, to go share the message. This ultimately, I, I think, is a story about hospitality for the stranger over and against the kind of demonic domination and oppression of the Roman Empire, whose king also proclaimed a different kind of good news, but only for certain people. This story really forces me to ask some questions. The story forces me to confront older stories about myself where I haven't been hospitable, where I have not sought the good of those who are different. And it forces me to ask, what will I do now? This story forces me to ask, who's in charge? The story forces me to ask, when I see oppression, Am I witnessing supernatural forces of evil or just the accumulation of past political, economic, and religious wrongs? And do I need to choose? Does it even matter? Does it make any difference if I don't act? If I don't practice hospitality, even if I don't understand where these evil things come from? Honestly, we don't have enough time to cover all the other examples of Jesus' hospitality in these stories that come after. Uh, there are two really beautiful intertwined stories of a young sick girl and an older sick woman, both seeking healing from Jesus, both suffering, 
And as Jesus is attending to an older woman who is suffering from a bleeding condition, the young girl dies. But Jesus restores her, demonstrating that he doesn't have to choose between who gets healed and who doesn't. Those stories deserve their own teaching. (laughs) There's also the feeding of the 5,000 that we're supposed to cover this morning, where Jesus takes a few Uncrustables, don't look it up, and feeds the whole crowd of people, making hospitality go the distance. But what I want to end this morning is with this scene where Jesus commissions his disciples to do the work we've just seen him doing. This is in Luke 9, uh, 1 through 6. Then Jesus called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, not even an extra tunic. Whatever house you enter, stay there, and then leave from there. Wherever they do not welcome you, as you are leaving that town, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. And so they departed and went through the villages, bringing the good news and carrying diseases everywhere. Jesus empowers his followers here to do the exact same things we've seen him done so far in this gospel, which is honestly sort of terrifying. I'm not suggesting that after this we all band together and believe, like the writers of The Exorcist Believer, that we can just face any trial, even demons, because of our community and our love for each other, okay? I'm not going to do that. But, but what I want to focus on here is that Jesus emphasis is on relying on hospitality as a part of continuing the healing traditions of Jesus. Jesus gives them authority over the ruling spirits of the day. Awesome. But he requires them in doing this to be dependent on others. They literally only have the clothes on their back and the generosity of others to sustain them. In the places where they are not received, they're supposed to shake the dust from their feet, removing any trace of the town or the household that refused them, and keep going. By the way, we have to point out that this mission that Jesus sends his followers on was a mission to their fellow people. It was to Israel. It was to their Jewish friends and neighbors. They were announcing the kingdom of God to their co-religionists. This was less a missionary movement to our people who had never heard of the good news or about God than a mission to win the hearts and minds of their own people. And I think it would be a mistake for us to sit here and try to think about how the followers of Jesus were different from other Jews. We've made it pretty clear throughout this series that Jesus and his followers were all very much committed to their faith uh, that was rooted in Judaism. Instead, I think it would be beneficial to ask ourselves what our stance is on hospitality towards other Christians. What's our posture towards Christians who don't think like us? What's our posture towards Christians who don't vote like us? How can we be more aware that the forces that oppress us, the forces that bind us and divide us can be cast out if we are willing to depend on hospitality, if we are willing to name them, if we are willing to speak out against them, to shake the dust off of our feet. I can't stand up here and tell you with any kind of certainty what I think about demon possession today. 
But I, I do believe in people being possessed by rhetorical politics. I do believe in people being possessed by binary thinking that absolves them of any guilt. And we hear it all the time. Democrats are baby killers and family destroyers. Republicans are heartless fascists. Muslims are violent. Palestinians are terrorists. Israelis are colonizers. These, these monikers that we throw on people allow them to be contained in very easily identifiable boxes that usually end up making us feel better about where we stand. But if we're going to be a part of the upside-down kingdom, the surprising kingdom of God, we've got to start nuancing every issue down to the level of whatever household or whatever person we, have, we happen to be sitting with. We have to embrace hospitality to the other, to hear the story of the other first before we shake the dust off of our feet. And there is a time to do that. We can't sit on the fence indefinitely to include someone at some point will, in fact, cause someone else to leave. But we have to be willing to put the burden of rejection on everyone else before we rush to cancel someone. There, there are people that we will have to be willing to let go if they don't demonstrate a willingness to step out of the binary, simplistic thinking that demonizes others. But we have to try first. I think our mission is to try to broker peace. Our mission is to try to loosen the hold of oppression wherever it exists, to declare the good news of an alternative reality where the categories are upended. And that's not going to be good news to everybody. The question for us in these stories is, will we lead with hospitality? Will we cross the lake or the border or the street to do it? Let's pray. God, we are probably feel pretty good about ourselves um, when we hear things that sound like what we would say when we're with people that tend to have the same experiences as us or share the same worldview. But God, we, we humbly ask that we would be people who step into the worlds of others and listen and look for you and look for the ways that we can break the very visible bonds that exist in our culture, that isolate, that alienate, that demonize, that shrink others down into these very containable boxes that we can dispose of. And may we see your kingdom come as we learn to submit ourselves to that foundational hospitality. We ask this in your name. Amen. Um, each week, we come around this table. Uh, we call it common meal. Uh, other places will call it the Eucharist or, com or communion or the Lord's Supper. And truly, what this meal is, very simply, is an act of hospitality. Um, the bread that we share has been baked by someone in our community. The wine made by someone in our community. The table and the cloth made by someone in our community and we, we bring these things together to give them away. And that's really what this moment is about. It's not about trying to label or name who can and can come to this table. 
It's about identifying the fact that we are all worthy of this table as long as we are willing to come and gather around with people who are usually very much unlike us. So as you come around the table, as you rub shoulders with other people in this community, uh, may, we, may we understand that not only in this room, but also outside of this room, uh, we are invited into this hospitable table that is for everyone. Whenever you're ready, we have gluten-free bread and grape juice if you need that.